0: I'm Carrie Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Plaza Smalagon, an astronomer working at SLAC National Lab on the Vera C. Rubin Observatory Project. We are recording on March 30th, 2023. I am going to try a new drink. This is called Prickly with two E's at the end, and it is cactus water in prickly pear flavor. What are you drinking?
1: Well, that sounds so yummy, actually. Now I want to drink that. (laughs) Um, So uh, thank you very much, Kerry, for inviting me. And uh, I'm just drinking coffee, good old coffee. It does have a personal connection because it's Colombian coffee. I was born in Colombia, in South America. So this is actually coffee that we brought from our most recent trip to Colombia to the coffee region, actually, the particular region where they have all the coffee production. We went there in January. So that's my cup of coffee in this. You cannot see it on the podcast, but it has very nice colors, the the little cup of a little coffee town in Colombia. So that's my coffee today, my drink today.
0: How wonderful. It's special. I bet it's delicious
1: yes yes i need to to wake up to a a lot of stuff too yes
0: (laughs) this drink is very good it tastes a little bit like artificial bubblegum flavor to me
1: (laughs) how do you feel about that
0: (laughs) i i think i'll reserve my opinion (laughs) i'll keep drinking while we're talking
1: next question
0: Uh, yeah (laughs) Uh, it's very sweet which is nice It says it has antioxidants, so maybe it's good for Um, me.
1: (laughs) It's got electrolytes. It's good for you. (laughs) Some movie that said that.
0: (laughs) So today I'm very excited because we're going to get into some serious astronomy (laughs) and work that tackles really big questions like, how big is the universe and what is it made out of? And to start us off, I think maybe sometimes people get confused with terms like galaxy and universe. They know they're both big, but they maybe don't know the difference between the two. Could you start us off by saying what is the universe?
1: What is the universe? What I know it's a real small the easy question
0: a softball to start <laughs> you off with.
1: Um is a, even even for professionals. It's just like everything that that there is that you can observe may, maybe observe is not the world, measure. <laughs> so I do cosmology. So let's start with that. Cosmology is the study of this universe as uh, as a whole. And when we think about the universe, we think about all the possible scales that we have. So we have our own Earth, that we live in a solar system, we live around a star, we and then we live in a galaxy which is hundreds of millions of stars. And that's called the Milky Way. and then there are hundreds of millions of galaxies like that. And then these galaxies they get together, they form structures and then we start growing 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 up, and that's what we call the the universe, this whole thing, a structure, large scale structure is actually how it's called. And in cosmology, we want to know what the origin of this universe is, how does it evolve, what the contents of this universe is. And we want to do it from the point of view of the scientific method. So this is sometimes referred to as physical cosmology.
0: That's a great answer. I want to highlight that you're a cosmologist, which is different than a cosmetologist.
1: That's a great difference to make. There's a lot of times people get confused.
0: A (laughs) cosmetologist, you know, is very good at cutting hair or doing nails. Uh, Cosmology is the study of of the universe. Um, But my students often get that confused. So I just wanted to point that out.
1: I think I got that confused once at the airport with the TSA agent in the United States. That's a, that's a very good point to make. Yes. They, they probably have similar origins. They were cosmos over there, but themology. But yes, we're talking about different things. Cosmology.
0: <laughs> so you work on the dark energy survey. What does that survey do? I know it does many things. So that's a big question.
1: Yeah. So this was a galaxy survey. So we had a telescope in Chile, in the northern part of Chile with the conditions are very nice to put an optical telescope um, close to the Atacama Desert, In the, actually in the southern part of the Atacama Desert, which is in the northern part of Chile. And then you go to a mountain, and then we put a telescope in a mountain called Tololo, Cerro Tololo. We put a telescope of four meters. And then for five years, we took pictures, so to speak, of 5,000 square degrees of the sky. What does that mean? It's It's, it's a lot. The sky is big. So just to give numbers, this is about one-eighth of the sky, which is st- still a lot. It's not the whole sky that you can see from Chile. And I'm going to say that because the Rubin Observatory is going to actually measure the whole sky with, with its survey. But this dark energy survey already happened during, between 2012 to 2017 or something like that, or 2018, five, six years. We took properties of hundreds of millions of galaxies. And what are these properties? their position how bright they are, how they move. And then along the way, you measure everything between galaxies and us. You have the stars, the solar system. And the main goal of the dark energy survey is to tell us about dark energy. So that's why it has that name. So I can I can talk about what dark energy is. so that's yes, gonna be... <laughs> It's, it's going to be a nice story because, well, as I was saying, when you're in cosmology, you want to know about the origin of the universe. Let's go back a hundred years ago, people didn't even think about what, like, is the universe actually expanding? Is it contracting? Are we going to, what's happening with the universe? Actually, people thought that the universe was in a state that it was more or less static, that it was just there. And then uh, a revolution came when Albert Einstein, a very famous person, came up with a new way of understanding what we call Gravity. So that was about in in, in 1916. So the technical name for this theory is called the theory of general relativity. But it's just a new way of understanding what we call gravity. Before that, we had the way of Isaac Newton, which still use it, but now Isaac gave us a new way of understanding gravity. And if you look at this mathematical framework or these, these new ideas then uh, you're going to find that in a universe that has galaxies that are interacting via gravity, it, you need to have a universe that is not a static, that is actually either expanding or is contracting. And the funny thing is that Einstein himself didn't believe that that could be a, a solution from his equations. It's like, this can be because we all know that the universe is static. So he, we're learning that he had prejudices, right? Like he had some idea. This is how the universe should be. He didn't trust his mathematical equations, but then other people took his equations, his theory, the Russian Alexander Friedman, one of them, there was the Belgian priest, George Lemaitre, and they used his equations and said like, yes, the universe actually should be expanding. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. Then this happens in the 20s. And then at the end of the 20s in the in Southern California, in a place called Mount Wilson Observatory... Several astronomers, one of them, Edwin Hubble and Milton Hamason and Vesto Leipzig, actually before that, they did observations of galaxies that are very, very far away and discovered and were able to provide experimental evidence in favor of this expansion of the universe. So that's the first thing. So then they call Einstein and then they took a very nice photo picture. If you go online, you see Albert Einstein in 1930 saying like, oh, yeah, you guys are right. This was my mistake. And I could have predicted the expansion of the universe and I would have been even more famous. He didn't say that, but we say (laughs) that now. (laughs) We say that now. But uh, so people then came to accept more or less. Well, well, you had the evidence, right? The experimental evidence. And this is the the basis of of science in favor of this expansion of the universe. And when we say expansion of the universe, it's it's that, that galaxies with time are farther and farther away from each other which is something that is not obvious and it actually changed our way of understanding the world and this happened in in, in the in the 20s in the 30s then uh so i'm telling all this story because it's a revolutionized cosmology this was one of the experimental evidences evidences in favor of what we now call the big bang theory which is the modern cosmological theory that we that we have that people have People know this term also because of the series, and but that's actually the theory that we use to understand the universe. It's called the Big Bang Theory. And the expansion of the universe is one of these experimental evidences that, that gives uh, credence to this theory. Okay. So then people, 100 years passed, well, 60 years, maybe I exaggerated a little bit, and people said, okay, the universe is expanding. If you have a universe that is expanding and then you still have galaxies that have gravity, and they are attracting each other, what would you expect would happen? In a similar way that when when you throw, for example, a a ball or a stone to the sky, at some point, because of the gravity of the earth, the stone is gonna go back to the earth because the gravity, even though the the stone or the ball is moving upwards, at some point it's gonna stop and then it's gonna come back if there is enough gravity, which there is from the earth. So people thought maybe something like that will happen in the universe. Mm Could it be that the universe has enough mass in enough enough gravity to stop this expansion, or could it be that maybe we don't have enough mass that is just gonna go expand forever, little by little? Like the speed is gonna decrease, but it's gonna still expand and expand forever and ever. These were the cosmological questions that people had back in in the time as I, I said about maybe in the 90s, in the 80s, even between the 30s and the 90s. I'm talking I'm talking about this after they established the expansion of the universe. Then we come to 1998. And then we come now finally to dark energy because there were a couple of, of groups using observations from Chilean astronomers in actually in Tololo and in, in another observatory called Calan in Santiago. They measure a particular type of star uh, called supernovae that has the property that has the same brightness, whatever you are. So why, why is this important? And what, what they wanted to, they wanted to measure this expansion of the universe and they wanted to answer this question. Actually, is the expansion of the universe gonna stop or not? The problem when you look at the sky is that if you see something that is bright, you don't know that it's bright, either is because it's very close to us or because it's intrinsically bright. But if you find this particular type of special stars that are called supernovae type 1A, People with high confidence, they know that no matter where they are, they have the same brightness. So that's why they call them standard candles. And this is great because if you see one of these that are faint, it's because they're actually far. It's not because they're intrinsically faint. It's just because they're actually far. And likewise, if you see them brighter, then it's because they're actually closer and not because they're, they're actually intrinsically brighter, because they have the same brightness no matter where they are. Okay, yes. so the bottom line finally reached, <laughs> reaching dark energy is that people wanted to use this fact to measure how the universe was expanding and how uh, this expansion was happening. And they discovered using this technique that actually the universe is expanding faster and faster with time. This is a shocking thing because it's like if you throw your ball or your stone to the sky, in, in my example, at some point you see the ball slowing down and then out of nowhere it's going to start speeding up faster and faster with time and you like what's happening so what's going on so that's exactly the situation in which we are we're in and then you can imagine this happened in 1998 and it didn't happen things don't happen overnight so people people in the decades before they were toying around with theoretical models that something like this could happen but until 1998 these particular groups published these papers and then in the next 10 or so years people expand other teams, other scientists spend their time making confirmation of this uh, hypothesis or this uh, observation, actually, because they did an observation. And then, yes, it was confirmed that the universe is expanding faster and faster in time. And in the same way that when you're driving with your car and if you go faster and faster in time, you say you're accelerating. Technically, when you go slower and slower in time, you're also accelerating. So it's when you're changing your velocity with time, you call that acceleration. So we call this the observed accelerated expansion of the universe. And that's, that's that's all that there is. We don't know what it is. So people need to call it something. People say, whatever is causing it, we're going to call it dark energy. Because we don't know what it is. It's just a placeholder name. And that, that's what that dark energy is. So in 2011, the people who made the discoveries at the end of the 90s, they won the Nobel Prize because of this discovery. And why did they win the Nobel Prize? Because this is a very, very important question to, to figure out. Like Either we have this new component that is making the universe expand faster and faster with time, what we call dark energy, and it could be a totally different form of, of, of matter of or energy. Um, And the other option is that maybe the laws of physics that we're using right now to understand the, the world need to be changed, which is, well, what are those laws of physics? The laws that I just said... Einstein came with in 1915 this theory of of general relativity so that's that would be great also if we find out that we need to modify Einstein's theory of relativity the thing is that in the individually you know in other experiments this theory has been confirmed experimentally over and over again when you hear about black holes when you hear about gravitational waves when you hear about other phenomena that involve gravity in extreme circumstances the theory has actually passed all these tests it could still be that in these cosmological scales this theory needs to be modified so we have these two options we have this weird stuff called dark energy or we need to change einstein's theory of relativity okay that's the long story which uh, believe it or not is actually a short explanation of what's going on <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I mean, those two conclusions are both bananas, right?
1: Yes, they're (laughs) both crazy, yeah.
0: most of the universe is made out of this stuff we can not directly detect or really understand in a deep way, or our laws of physics are wrong. Either one.
1: (laughs) Either one, yes. And as you mentioned, I didn't mention this explicitly, but as you said, most of the universe, because we actually can calculate the fraction... That this dark energy is the fraction of the universe. Let's say is this like 10% of what is in the universe or 20%? It's not. It's 70% of everything that you that there is in the universe is dark energy. There are ways of calculating that with observations and with mathematics. And that's crazy. Like most of what there is in the universe, we don't know what it is.
0: And on previous episodes, we've mentioned dark matter before. What's the difference between dark matter and dark energy?
1: Oh, that's another great question. And then they have in common the the adjective dark and then you can imagine that oh why do they have it in common because yeah these guys don't know exactly what they're talking about (laughs) not not quite (laughs) but it's it's actually a placeholder again of a name of another substance that we call dark matter is going to act in different spatial scales than dark energy and now we're going to think about galaxies let's think about galaxies and then Dark energy, so just to back up a little bit, dark energy acts on this part scales that you can think of, not only of one galaxy, but if you look at, if you zoom out, as I mentioned at the beginning, the hundreds of millions of galaxies that you have in the universe, they make a web or a, what we call the cosmic web, again, the large scale structure of the universe. And on those very large levels of scale levels of hundreds of millions of light years, then you have dark energy causing this expansion of the universe, this accelerated expansion of the universe. Now for dark matter, let's go back to galaxies, let's say to the tiny, when you're a cosmologist, the galaxy is just like your building block, your Lego. You need to use a lot of your imagination because for us humans, even the solar system is huge. But then here you need to, to reset your imagination a little bit and, oh, it's just one galaxy. So in one galaxy... Then you can also do observations. So people were actually looking at how the stars move around the galaxy. You can think of a galaxy usually. I'm pretty sure the the people who are listening to this right now, they're thinking of, of a galaxy that looks like a spiral. It has some arms. And then now I want you to imagine that things are rotating in that galaxy. That's one type of galaxy. And the Milky Way, it's one of these type of spiral galaxies. And then people were measuring the velocity around which the stars were moving around the center of the galaxy. And they discovered that in order for those stars to be bound to the galaxy, there should be more matter than what you can see from from the light of the galaxy. So you can think of, for example, that you have a a stone. Again, let's go back to my stone. And then we have a piece of of string. And then you start swirling it around your head. Because you have enough tension in that string and in your hand. That's the that's the gravity, let's say, that's keeping that string, that stone together and it's not flying to hit another person, right? But if you didn't have enough strength, then the stone would just go and fly away. So this is what people were, were saying. They were like, these stars are going super fast. And then on the other hand, from the light we see from these galaxies, We cannot calculate enough mass because if you see light from a galaxy, you can calculate the mass that the galaxy has. So there was like, oh, there must be something else that it's not absorbing or emitting light. Here I'm talking light in terms of different types of electromagnetic radiation is what we call it in in physics. But light is not only the light that we see, but also radio waves or x-rays gamma rays or microwave all this for a scientist is light it's electromagnetic radiation so then people were thinking then there there must be something that doesn't interact or uh, absorb or emit this electromagnetic radiation that but still producing gravity so that the stars in these galaxies are bound to the galaxy and then you can do the same experiment in a cluster of galaxies now imagine that you have hundreds or thousands of galaxies bound together by gravity and then you can do something analogous and measure how they move around their common center there is a center in which they revolve and then you can also make that inference that actually there should be there must be actually more matter than what you can see with electromagnetic radiation so this dark matter we call it dark matter we don't know what it is uh, we think it might be a new particle, a new fundamental particle like protons or electrons. These are what we call fundamental particles, like what atoms are made of. But this is something completely different. And this is also bananas because we have a very successful theory to understand the micro world. So I've talked about the very successful theory to understand the, the big world as the theory of general relativity. And then we have a very successful theory to understand the particle physics Atoms and neutrons and electrons, and that's called the standard model of particle physics. Physicists are not very creative with names, but we call it a standard. It earned the name of a standard because it has passed many, many experimental tests. The bottom line is that none in this standard model, despite being so successful, it doesn't tell us anything about dark matter or about dark energy. And that's another banana thing. So to summarize then we have this dark energy which is 70 percent of the universe is causing the accelerated expansion of the universe we have this dark matter that governs the structure of galaxies and clusters of galaxies it's still very large scales but it's smaller smaller than the largest scales that we think of in the universe and this dark matter makes about 25 percent of everything that there is in the universe and if you put them together then we have this dark sectors and people talk about the dark sector of the universe is 95% of everything that there is in the universe. We come back to the question of what the universe is. We we might not give a concrete definition, but we know that 95% of everything that there is in the universe is something that we don't understand. And then the rest, (laughs) what is the rest? The 5% is is us. All this computer, this microphone, you and me, all the galaxies that you can see, that's 5%. And that's why this is such an important question. The two of them, actually, the two questions.
0: That's you know really amazing to think about. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I'll just yeah. pause to let it sink in for folks.
1: Let's pause and take a, a <laughs> sip of coffee. I'm gonna drink my coffee. <laughs>
0: It's pretty amazing that, you know, we can live our everyday lives going to cosmetologists and getting our hair cut and never think that most of the universe is something we don't understand. Ne- next That's time, to...
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. That next time you go to your cosmetologist, you can do some small talk with them and tell it. did you know that cosmetologists? the word <laughs> cosmetologist is similar to cosmology and then from you can take it from there and tell them about dark energy and dark matter. Exactly. And then your hair is done, see? <laughs>
0: could you talk a little bit about your specific role in the dark energy survey
1: yes yes so okay we don't know what these dark energy and dark matter things are we do have tools to learn more about them how do we see so with dark matter i just said that it doesn't emit or absorb electromagnetic light you cannot see it so to speak how do you see the invisible how do you find invisible there is something called gravitational lensing this is the tool that we're going to use to see the invisible and then we come back to our friend Albert Einstein and in his way of understanding gravity we have this prediction that if you have any mass in the universe whatever it is a star or a, a galaxy or a cluster of galaxy let's say that you have something like that and then in the background beyond you have something that is emitting light another star, another galaxy, and then let's imagine the path of a ray of light from that source in the background, and then it's coming towards us, and then it encounters this uh, this thing in the middle, this star or galaxy or source of mass. That ray of light is going to be bent by the presence of that foreground mass, distribution of mass. So this bending of light by a distribution of mass energy is what we call gravitational lensing. So what's technically happening is the distortion of space-time, but that's like another... Talking about space-time, I think is like another podcast. (laughs) But this is one (laughs) of the main ideas of Albert Einstein. If you feel curious, you can Google space-time, but I was trying to avoid that. And we don't need to understand that to, to understand what I'm talking about. So let's just think again of bending of light by any distribution of matter. And then when I say bending of light, I also want you to think about just your glasses that you're wearing or maybe a, a cup of, of wine, because also the bending of light is happening in there. So that's why this is called lensing, because it's like a regular lens. A regular lens, it bends light, so to speak. And usually when I give talks, I have a picture of a candle and then actually a colleague of mine at Kaipak at, at Slack came with, with this analogy. I think you have a candle and then you have your glass of wine empty. You drink the wine first to see the bending of light. <laughs> but then you, <laughs> that if you if you take the, the, the bottom of the glass of wine and put it in front of the candle and then you move it around, you play a little bit around between the, the alignment between the candle and your eyes, you can see that the light of the candle starts to get distorted. You can even get like a ring around it. Or you can get multiple images. You can see magnification of the light. And all this that I just described is what happens in the universe. And now to to make justice to this, people need to go to Google and and do strong lensing or gravitational lensing space telescope. And you're going to see these beautiful images of clusters of galaxies. And you're going to see arcs of galaxies that are behind or even rings which is the image of the galaxy that is in the background that has been distorted by the light in the foreground. And then then you can see how these galaxies or everything that is behind gets distorted by some distribution of matter in the foreground. So this is the the at the core of this gravitational lensing technique. So I hope that you can see where I'm going because if you have more matter, then you have more distortion. You can measure those distortion. If you have less matter, then it's not going to get the image on the background is not going to get as distorted so it can tell you about the amount of matter that's in the in the foreground and we call we're going to call this foreground lens just this gravitational lens and that's like ah okay this is great because it doesn't matter whatever it doesn't matter what the matter is it doesn't matter if it's dark matter it doesn't matter if it's the normal matter that we call that we made of is going to produce this gravitational lensing effect. So if I can measure these distortions of the foreground galaxies, usually galaxies, but you have also quasi-stellar objects, quasars or, or supernovae, but let's stick with galaxies in the foreground. If you measure this, all these distortions, you can start making a map of the distribution or where in the space the dark matter is that is causing those particular distributions. You can use your... Your your intellect. You can use math, general relativity, and you can use your computers to tell you about where dark matter is. So you can make a map of of dark matter in the universe, and that's great. That's also telling us we we might not know what dark matter is, but if we know how it distributes, how it gets distributed in the space, we may learn about what it actually is. So with gravitational lensing, you use you use this technique. In a survey like the Dark Energy Survey, this is one of the main techniques in which you measure hundreds of millions of galaxies over 5,000 square degrees of the sky. You measure these distortions to make maps of dark matter. And at the same time, you make maps of dark matter at different times in the evolution of the universe. Because when you're looking, this is maybe another blowing, like it's going to blow your mind. But when you're looking into the sky, you're looking into the path, into the past. What does that mean that because whatever you look from the sky is like a messenger it needs to come to your eyes through light and just imagine that it's like a little person running with information to your eyes but if that little person has finite speed it's going to take time for that information to arrive to you so usually we don't notice that because the speed of that messenger that little person here I'm, i'm anthropomorphizing everything but the light here is the messenger that is, is going so fast that we don't notice that in, in the earth? The speed of light, I know it in kilometers per second, and I apologize, It's 3000 kilometers per second. <laughs> I don't know if you know it in miles. It's very
0: fast. I mean, fast. it's
1: so fast. It's very fast <laughs> you that it doesn't matter, it. that it, you don't even need to convert it. But the point is that when you're in the cosmos, which is so big that that difference matters. And then the classic example is that when you're looking at the sun, you're looking at how the sun was about eight minutes away in the past, because it took eight minutes for light to actually arrive here. And then you can extend that concept to galaxies and to clusters of galaxies. And if you have a a relatively close galaxy, that is uh, about a certain amount of, distance because i was going to say light years that's that's where the word light year comes but then if let's say light took like two years from a particular galaxy to come from when the light was emitted from the galaxy to us then that's we're seeing it how it was two years ago okay so this simple correspondence it's it works when with nearby objects but it gets a little bit more complicated but that's the basic that's the basic idea and then coming back to my story then with that idea in mind when you're looking into the sky and galaxies that are very very far away you're looking at them at different points in the time of the evolution of the universe of the life of the universe and then you put that together with the technique of gravitational lensing in which you can make a map of dark matter then you can make a map of dark matter at different times in the life of the universe and then you can see how it changes because things are always changing and then the analogous thing is that I give you a picture of a person as a baby. Then I give you a picture of a person as a kid. Then when they were a teenager and then adulthood, etc. And from that, I want you to reconstruct the life of that person. So that's more or less something what's happening. And then what that's going to tell us about dark matter. And then what the, the in-betweens is where dark energy comes, comes. Because if you think a little bit about it, dark matter wants to make galaxies, wants to, put together galaxies and wants to create a structure in the universe at the level of the galaxies, at the level of clusters of galaxies. But on the other hand, dark energy, remember is causing things to go to span faster and faster with time. So dark energies, you can think of it as pushing things away. So more or less, you can think of this as a cosmic tug of war in which dark matter is trying to put things together galaxies and clusters of galaxies and dark energy is trying to push things away. So you can, by measuring how dark matter changes in time, then you can, that's how you can learn more about how dark energy is also changing with time. And by studying those changes, you can put constraints on what dark energy could be. Could it be that is something that is constant in time as the universe expands, we have this type of, new component of the universe of energy that actually doesn't change with time could it be that sounds crazy but that's actually the current theory of cosmology that agrees with observation (laughs) and that's how we learn about it and um, then you would expect it sounds crazy because like say that you have like you have a box and then you have you have balls or particles of gas let's say that magically you can expand that box then you can talk about the number of particles per, per volume or per space. If you have more space, then you're going to have fewer particles per space. It's what we call density. I didn't want to use the word density. But intuitively speaking, you can say that if you have these little bugs and everything was crammed, these little balls were inside and were crammed, there was more density and then you magically expanded the bugs. There is less density just because there is more space. And the number of balls remains the same. So you would expect that the density goes down as things expand. And this is what happens with dark matter, with ordinary matter. But I'm telling you that despite expanding the bugs, dark energy is actually remaining constant. The density of dark energy remains constant. And this is a crazy thing again. And people are like, why are you? Are you guys even serious? But (laughs) believe it or not, this is the the simplest explanation that we have to (laughs) understand our data so it's it's all it's all this craziness because in the end people tell you like okay you're telling me that you have this model and then there is 95 percent that you don't understand of it but you still use it it's like well but this is the model that adjusts to the data in the end we need to go back to observations and we need to try to adjust those observations to data that's the science you have observations and even if it's crazy this is the simplest idea that we have this constant dark energy and we have this dark matter a a certain flavor of dark matter that is called cold dark matter we don't i'm gonna throw that term there but not gonna go into into details but we have a certain flavor of dark matter and that explains our observations then you're you're wondering my dear listener like are there more options like yes there's uh, hundreds of papers of research articles you're gonna find a lot of alternative ideas of what dark energy could be Dark matter could be, some people say, no, there's no dark matter. It's actually, we need to change gravity in a different way, like called modified Newtonian dynamics. Well, it has all these names. The the point is that there's a lot of ideas in the end, you have observations that are observations that the ones produced by the dark energy survey. And then you need to match those ideas, like what you think things are to that data and see what's the best was the best fit in this case i guess i can use the word now so so that's that that's it and then all of this i I even do something even more specific because this technique of gravitational lensing sounds beautiful and amazing and it is but it's incredibly hard to measure it when you have hundreds of millions of galaxies because sometimes you see a galaxy that looks like an ellipse but you cannot tell if that galaxy looks like an ellipse just because it is an ellipse or like the projected image is an ellipse or because there is some gravitational lensing that is distorting it like a little bit. So this is something very, very hard to measure. And then a lot of people make the careers out of understanding the errors that go in this measurement. And that's part of what I do. I try to understand the detectors that we use the optical detectors that we use in our images or or even errors that could come from other sources. And these are the type of errors that it doesn't matter if you have a lot of data, this error is going to remain there. And that's what you call systematic error. That's another maybe technical word. But you can think of it as if you're measuring the height of a person with a ruler that's off by one feet. So no matter if that person that person's height is six feet, you're always going to measure one feet. And that's for one person. And if you do it with many, many people, those measurements are always going to be off by one feet because, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but because that's an error that is intrinsic to your measurement apparatus. And it doesn't matter how many measurements you do, it's always going to be there. So we have this type of systematic errors in in our detectors and in other sources in in our measurement pipelines that even though they're there if you understand them if you measure if you know very well that you're always going to be off by one feet then in the end you can just safely say that you can subtract that and then trust your final measurement in order to trust we're trying to answer one of the most important questions of humankind so we need to convince our colleagues and our peers that our measurement is trustworthy and by that, we need to show them that we've done a lot of studies of the errors, of the systematic errors that we understand and that we're able to subtract them. So that's my niche research part, <laughs> which is looking into detectors and looking at other sources of systematic errors for weak gravitational lensing.
0: You explained that so well. I love all of your analogies. I'll be honest, I've been really afraid to have a cosmologist on the show just because (laughs) it's very complex and it's hard to explain clearly. After that beautiful communication you've just done, people will not be surprised to learn that you actually host your own astronomy podcast. So you created a new host, Vision Cosmica. Can you tell us about it and how people can listen to it if they're interested?
1: Absolutely. Well, first, it's in Spanish, so I hope that you're looking forward to practicing your Spanish skills. <laughs> and uh, it's called Visión Cosmica. So the word visión is the same as vision, spelled the same, and cosmica is as cosmic, but with an A. You can find it on Spotify and Apple Podcast, and we have our own website, visioncosmica.org. And uh, yes, this is something when I was working a couple of years ago with another great science communicator, Dr. Pamela Gay. She has a lot of amazing podcasts, one of them Astronomy Cast and 365 Days of Astronomy, I think, among many others. And then I was working with her and she's like, I want to make a podcast in in astronomy in in Spanish. You know, we want to reach people in the United States who identified with who are curtly Hispanic, but also anyone in general who wants to hear about science in, in Spanish. I think it's important to communicate science in other languages um, in addition to English. And we started doing this podcast about a year and a half ago or so. I guess it doesn't have the cadence I wish it had because I do this on my spare time. But I try to invite people to tell me, like what you're doing, Carrie, like tell me about their, their careers, about their lives, whatever they wanna talk about. Or something I sometimes I found in the news something interesting that I would like to talk about. And it's it's a it's a podcast about astronomy in general, cosmology, exclusion, cosmic, cosmic vision. And I talk about cosmology a lot, but I also wanted to talk about other aspects like the social aspects that go in astronomy and also even cultural aspects. I'm with a friend in Colombia and thinking about making a podcast about video games and astronomy because she she has interest in video games she's a designer and and there's always i want to make the connection to astronomy to things that are maybe maybe they're not connected but i think you can find astronomy in, in anything so i'm always also looking for people who are maybe not professional astronomers but who can make a connection with astronomy so yeah if you're one of those let me know and we can arrange a new a new episode
0: that's so great. Thanks so much for sharing. I agree. It's so important to have science communication in all types of languages. I've worked with some students who, for example, speak Spanish at home or even Russian at home or any sort of language. And they always tell me they have problems telling their parents what they do because maybe they know colloquial Spanish, but they don't know any of the terms. So I think a podcast is just a great way to learn about science and pick up some extra extra words in different languages.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yes.
0: Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Plazas Malagón, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about dark energy, we get to hear a fun fact about Andres.
1: I got a pilot's license when I was a postdoc at JPL. Oh, wow. I I haven't flown in years because I had a baby and then it's expensive. (laughs) So that was cool. I only fly the single engine land Cessna. So I, I like to try new things. Last year I played Taiko drums in St. Louis for a summer. And we we perform in the Japanese festival in the botanical gardens. I like to learn new languages, like study Japanese and French and Russian. And I want to teach my kid Icelandic because he's half Icelandic now. But there's sometimes I don't have the time, but I like to, I'm just curious. I like to try new things and what else? I like, I like video games. I like manga, <laughs> Japanese comics. So these are some of the fun facts, I guess. I think. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> <My> amazing. <purpose. laughs>
0: thank you so much for being on the show. Um, and thank you for sharing.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. It was a lot of fun. Hope to see you in another opportunity.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Absolutely. <laughs> There's, we've just scratched the surface.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron 3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listen2spacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.